0: Psalm 118, let us hear the very very word of God. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord for he is good because his mercy endureth forever. Let Israel now say that his mercy endureth forever. Let the house of Aaron now say that his mercy endureth forever. Let them now that fear the Lord say that his mercy endureth forever. I called upon the Lord in distress. The Lord answered me and set me in a large place. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do unto me? The Lord taketh my part with them that help me. Therefore shall I see my desire upon them that hate me. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. All nations compassed me about, but in the name of the Lord will I destroy them. They compassed me about, yea, they compassed me about, but in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. They compass me about like bees. They are quenched as the fire of thorns, for in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. Thou hast thrust sore at me that I might fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and song and has become my salvation. The voice of rejoicing and salvation is in the tabernacles of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord doeth valiantly, The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord doeth valiantly. I shall not die, but live and declare the works of the Lord. The Lord hath chastened me sore, but he hath not given me over unto death. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I will go into them, and I will praise the Lord. This gate of the Lord into which the righteous shall enter. I will praise thee, for thou hast heard me and art become my salvation. The stone which the builders refused is become the headstone of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I beseech thee, O Lord. O Lord, I beseech thee, send now prosperity. Blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you out of the house of the Lord. God is the Lord which hath showed us light Bind the sacrifice with cords, even unto the horns of the altar. Thou art my God, and I will praise thee. Thou art my God, I will exalt thee. O give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good. For his mercy endureth forever. Amen. Let us pray. O glorious and gracious God, we come now to the preaching of the word. And thy minister asks for divine help. O God, send the Spirit, the same Spirit that uh, inspired this text, that that Spirit would demonstrate the power of God, the glory of God, the wisdom of God through the preaching of the Word. And we pray that all the ears here that would hear would have the Spirit open their ears to the wonderful things that are found in the Word of God. Would you help both minister and member now to glory in and revel in the excellencies of Christ Jesus our Lord. So help now your minister preach, that it be not in the wisdom of man's words, but in a demonstration of the spirit and of power, that the faith of the congregation would rest entirely and wholly in God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, brethren, we come now to the last of the great Hallel Psalms. As you are aware, we have been in this section of God's word for several months. Psalms 113 to Psalm 118. These are those psalms by which Israel of old um, celebrated their Passover and celebrated their exodus out of Egypt. And so it seems fitting that we come now to this final Hallel Psalm as we ourselves prepare for the communion service. You remember that Christ with his disciples On the night in which he was betrayed, on that last Passover and that first Lord's Supper, sang these psalms. You remember that in Matthew chapter twenty-six, when they went out on the night in which he was betrayed to sing a hymn, that hymn being one of these Hallel psalms, according to the practice of the Jews. And he went out singing this psalm because he went out to accomplish the greater exodus, the greater exodus not from Egypt. Not from Pharaoh, from which many men had escaped, but that one bondage that no man can escape from. A bondage to sin and the devil. A bondage to eternal misery and hell. Through Christ, our Passover, who is slain for us. And so we see these Hallel Psalms as a new song. As new songs in Christ, our Redeemer. They give to us, God has given to us fresh meaning in all of these Psalms as we sing them with Christ, our Passover lamb, in view. And the Psalm that is before us, Psalm 118, is especially important when it comes to prophesying of the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's demonstrated many times in the New Testament, as you might be well aware, that this Psalm, especially its 22nd verse, is cited multiple times in the New Testament, even by our Lord himself. And so we see this psalm as prophetic in a very heightened way concerning our Savior. And its primary theme, especially as you consider our Savior in view, is really thankfulness. Thankfulness for the goodness of God. And you think of how fitting it is as uh, we come to the end of these Hallel Psalms where we have Praise the Lord. We have uh, uh, given forth our hallelujahs for his goodness to save us. And at the very end of it, all we can do is say, thanks be unto God for such a great and merciful salvation as he has wrought for us in Jesus Christ. Such that moving forward, as you look on the the, the design of the psalm book, right? And you can think of it in this way. Here we have redemption, In these Hallel psalms, what's the very next psalm that comes, boys and girls? Psalm 119 on the law. And we have that pattern as we find like in the book of Romans, where we find the grace of the Lord. And then in Romans chapter 12, we find that our life is to be lived in thankfulness to God. And then here comes the law of God afterward, not before, so that we may know how to live thankful lives out of our redemption. And so when you consider the great law psalm, you must consider it in view of Christ's work here in Psalm 118 as we enter into that psalm in months to come. And so this final Hallel psalm shows our praise ought to lead to a life out of thankfulness for the goodness of the Lord. And that's our theme. Give thanks to the Lord for his goodness to us in Christ. And we'll consider it under the three heads in your bulletin this morning. First is our Lord's goodness, our King's sufferings, and our Christ's salvation. First heading, Our Lord's Goodness. In this heading, we'll consider the first four verses of the psalm. And if you're new to our psalm of the month, uh, I cannot go through verse by verse, but I give a sense of the theme of the psalm so that you may know how to sing with understanding. You should be able to take this psalm tonight and spend the next week just rejoicing in it as you consider it. But in this first head, we consider the first four verses. Verse 1 begins, O give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, because his mercy endureth forever. And you'll notice, if you are aware um, from our reading, the psalm is bookended in this way. It ends the very same way with this directive, to give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. And that is important. We'll consider that in a moment. But the first part of this directive for thankfulness is this, and we overlook it. To give thanks to the Lord, for he is what? Good. Not even that he does good, but that he is good. In fact, our thankfulness must not begin with his mercies towards us. Rather, our thankfulness begins with the contemplation of who God is. That he is good. And here is the thing. Only he is good, absolutely speaking so. You remember, boys and girls, Christ told the uh, rich young ruler that there is none good but one that is God. Yet you do find that the scripture speaks of other men as good. Barnabas, for instance, is called good in Acts 11.24. So why would Jesus say that there is none good but God? Well, because God alone is absolutely good. And he is the source. He is the fountain of all that is good. Uh, Man's goodness, even when we are glorified in heaven, saints, pales in comparison to the goodness of God. We are finite. Our goodness is finite. It is not infinite. Our goodness is uh, uh, much smaller, even when we are perfected, than God's. But there is an absolute and total purity and perfection in God's goodness that we ourselves will never possess and no man will ever possess. Boys and girls, you think of it this way as you go back to the very beginning of the Bible. Why can we say then that the creation was made very good? Because its creator, its source is good. And from God's goodness then is every blessing man can have and does have. But we must even go further than that. Because God is good, we must believe that every aspect of God is good. And every, every action of God is good. Every aspect and every action of God. Every aspect of God is good. Every divine attribute is good. God is simple, as we have heard many times. You cannot really separate his attributes one from another. So we say and admit his holiness is good. His wisdom is good. His power is good. His truth is good. Every aspect of God, but also every action of God that he performs is good. His creation is good. His providence is good. His providences are good. Why can we say this, boys and girls? Because God is good. God is good. And that affects how you think about everything truly. As God is sovereign over all. You think about now as you consider that God is good. You think on all of those words you've heard in the Bible. What did Joseph say to his brothers when he thought on their evil? Right? He said, What they meant for evil, God meant for good. Why? Because God is good. And that's what you must say in every trial, isn't it? God is good. You know, it's a simple thing, but it's often far from our hearts. You say in every providence, This is good for me. Every trial you say good. One day you will see why, even if you don't know why today. Faith believes this about God's goodness. That God has not ceased to be good to me if I am a child of God. Such that even in your disappointments, you would say, as Eli said, It is the Lord. Let him do what seemeth him what? Good. Why can we have that kind of faith? Because God is good. And knowing he is good, if you're in Christ, you say, I know of a truth that all things work together for what? Good for them that love God, because he is good. And that's not negotiable in any way. That will at times challenge your soul, yet you must remember God is good. You would say that all good things I have is because God is good. Every good gift and perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. James 1.17. And here's the thing. Because He is good, He also gets to tell you and me what is good. Not Congress, not the Supreme Court, not the President, not even your minister, but God only. And we say His laws are good, His ways are good, and anything contrary to what God has laid out is what? Evil. It's not black and white. And as God's goodness is inseparable from His immutability, as He has said, For I am the Lord, I change not. What he says is good is not subject to change. It's not subject to the whims of man's mutability. What is good in this book is good in the 1st century, in the 17th century, in the 21st century, and if the Lord tarries, the 24th century. And we must remember that. It is not subject to the whims of society. And faith believes these things about God's goodness. Every aspect of him every action of his, and embraces them with joy. And a heart of faith gives thanks to the Lord for this bare fact. Why? He is good. But the verse says, his goodness is manifested by way of his mercy, because his mercy endureth forever. And this is an expression of the goodness of God. And you notice here, it is a refrain Four times in four verses, and that ought to grab our attention, shouldn't it? You find, as we heard in our call to worship, that it's repeated because none of God's people are excluded from saying it. That all of God's people have received mercy if they're in Christ. From ministers to members, all Israel was to sing it. The house of Aaron, the old priesthood, was to sing it. Those who feared the Lord, those who are afar off, the Gentile believers, We're to sing it as well. All of God's people are to sing that His mercy endureth forever. Because this is something, again, that we're prone to forget, isn't it? Some have called His mercy endureth forever to be the anthem of the church. Why is that? You look at how many times it's repeated in the Scriptures, right? But perhaps no more powerfully than in Psalm 136. 26 times We are called in that psalm to repeat that his mercy or steadfast love or loving kindness endureth forever. It's an unceasing refrain meant to be, in a sense, the anthem of the church that we live by the mercies of God. Whatever condition the church is in, whatever state his people are in, we must remember and never forget there is plenteous mercy for us in Christ. Child of God, will you... In a sense, make this the anthem of your life that is loving kindness, that is mercy, endures forever, especially as you come to the supper next week and you prepare to take the bread and the wine. You see the broken body of the Lord and his poured out blood. Can that not testify to you that his mercy endures forever? And it is. A call in this psalm to sing with a great shout that his mercy does endure forever. God's goodness is inseparable from his eternity, isn't it? The product of that is mercy unending to you, child of God, because he changes not and he is eternal. Well, let's consider some uses of this knowledge in the first four verses besides praise. When you sin and you are brought low in grief, why repent? Because his mercy endureth forever. When you are in need of help without any power or wisdom, why pray? Because his mercy endureth forever and is not ceasing towards his people. When you're under the rod of affliction and chastening from the Lord even over your sin, and you're so ashamed and you sense the smarting of God's rod, what must you ask? In Psalm um, 77, verse 8, Is his mercy clean gone forever? Doth his promise fail forevermore? And you respond with that refrain of the church, No, his mercy endureth forever. You have to remind your soul of these things, child of God. And this is why God wants you to repeat these things many times. Recently in family worship, we were reading through the account of when David took a census and he was chastened by the lord as you remember he was confronted by gad and gad laid out options on how israel might be chastened and david was to choose what was david's only response i am in great strait let us fall now into the hand of the lord why for his mercies are great and let me not fall into the hand of man second samuel 24 you know, when you are chastened of the Lord, you be very glad that it's the Lord chastening you because his mercies are very great and he chastens you as a father out of love, as we've recently thought on many times. But of course, the greatness of his mercy is exemplified most of all by Christ, our Passover. The goodness of God that makes us tremble at it, as we remember in Jeremiah 33, that we would tremble at the goodness of God, Christ slain for us in our place. And I want to consider that more with you in our second heading, which is the king's distress. This next portion of the psalm deals with the distress of the psalmist. That would be from verses 5 to 18, where he recounts the soreness and great troubles that he had undergone. And the psalmist here recounts what appears to be a prior trial, a prior distress that he had fallen under. And he sings this and pens this by the Spirit's inspiration in view of how God had helped him in it, through it all, and that he could say, God is good and the Lord is merciful to me. Now, before we get into the substance here, I I didn't want to leave before meditating on this thought, that There is a principle here, child of God. You and I are quick to forget prior deliverances, aren't we? You forget his mercies. You forget all the straits you have been, that the Lord has been faithful time and time and time again to draw you out. of. And thanks and praise are far from us then in our present trials and distresses, because we are not often in the frame as the psalmist was to remember how God has been good to him. And how God has delivered him. And all children of God can remember his mercies beginning at least at the cross and moving forward from there. Well, we're unsure of who the psalmist was. We cannot tie it into a particular uh, deliverance, into a particular moment in history. And if the psalmist wasn't King David, it was certainly a godly king. Uh, You see uh, evidences of that, such as in verses 10 and 11. All the heathen nations encompassed the psalmist. He was going to destroy them all in the name of the Lord. And so the psalmist had kingly power. And he represented the nation, the people of God. This is a king of faith who knew the goodness and mercies of God in his distresses. You think about David himself on the 27th Psalm who had said, I had fainted unless I believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Right, This is the frame of good and godly kings. But for time's sake, because this is our psalm of the month, let's just cut to the chase, as it were. Who does the Holy Spirit have in view? You know it's King Jesus. When you see the purity of heart and the greatness of the suffering of this king, Fitted with the final portion of the psalm, full of prophecies about Christ, you can know for a certain that this trouble and affliction supremely speaks of what Christ has suffered to win salvation for us, the citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And here you find his great trust in the Lord's goodness in verses 8 and 9. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. Now, we ask ourselves, why does God repeat himself? It's because we have truths that we must grab a hold of. Here, what is the truth? It is better to trust in the Lord than to put our confidence in men. That's the truth that we must embrace. And when it concerns Jesus, you're, we can forget, we've considered this in prior sermons, that Jesus himself was a man of faith. He trusted in God. He had to in order to save us who are full of unbelief, to represent us who are full of disbelief and faithlessness. But consider then, as this psalm gives us a bit of the heart of Christ, how Christ trusted in the Lord in all of his distresses, then children of God. You think of the ungodly kings of old, who in their distress, right, what did they do? They forgot the Lord and they sought foreign powers for help. They look to nations like Assyria and Egypt for help instead of putting their trust and their confidence in Jehovah. We remembered not too long ago King Jehoshaphat. He was godly, and when he was perplexed, he came before the Lord with his immortal prayer. For we have no might against this great company that cometh against us. Neither know we what to do, but what our eyes are upon thee a godly king who trusted in the Lord, Second Chronicles 10. And you know Christ never committed himself, trusted himself to men. John 2.24, but Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men. Learn from the Savior. What is the refrain? No confidence in men, even princes. No confidence in men. You and I cannot rely on any mere man. Not the ministers of God even. You can only rely on Jehovah to save us. Can he and will he use men? Absolutely, he uses means. He will send us at times men like Moses, men like Paul, men like Luther, men like Calvin, but our trust never in men, but the Lord that sends men when we depend on God. This also speaks to the kind of trust that we put in the princes of this world as well. Many of God's people put their hope and trust in princes. We're coming upon another crazy election season, aren't we? And how many are putting their trust in princes like Donald Trump? Or if you're on the other side of the aisle, at one point you might have said Barack Obama or something like that. Trust in the Lord. Pray to him. Commit yourself to him. No man, you think a man can save this nation. You think a man can save the church of Jesus Christ? Absolutely ridiculous. Only God can. No confidence in men. Remember that, children of God. No confidence in men. Doesn't matter if it is even your spouse. No confidence in men. Confidence only in the Lord. Children, trust your parents, honor them. But if you're going to have unshakable confidence... Have it only be in the Lord. So that when your parents or any man fails you, you can say, as we often sing in the metrical psalter, God doth fail me never. Well, in verses 10 to 12, as we consider the nations, they were compassed about him. You recall that at Christ's crucifixion, the Jewish nation and the Roman nation both surrounded our king. And this description here in the psalm is quite vivid and memorable. In verse 12, he says his enemies were quenched like the fire of thorns. They, they, they were, um, and then they were like bees as well that buzzed about him. Now, when it comes to this idea of this fire of thorns, you know, thorns are things that are prickly and they hurt us. right? And he talks about them being lit on fire. Where our children know, if they've uh, ever gone camping, and our children have, that you often take kindling, don't you? You gather kindling so that you can light the fire. And what happens with the kindling is that it often lights up quickly and ferociously. But then what? It quickly dies out. It doesn't have any lasting strength. And that's what the the psalmist is saying. That his enemies, though they are, um, the heat was intense, it was only for a moment. They were quenched quickly. And so it was for our Lord. He endured the pain and the scorn and the afflictions, knowing what? That they were momentary. Momentary. He set his face like flint to the cross, but he looked beyond it for the joy that was set before him, despising the shame of the cross. His enemies are also like bees that had been stirred up. If you think about that, if you've ever been surrounded by wasps or bees, um, stinging, surrounding, painful, confusing, enveloping, This is what his enemies were like, and it's a vivid portrayal of what the cross was like. Thrusting at him sore, we read, that he might fall. You think of the enemies of Christ, crying, crucify him, crucify him, spitting at him, mocking him, flogging him. And this is a sense of what that was like. But where does his faith look? Heavenward above the noise, above the tumult, above the pain and the shame. Verse 13 says, his enemies had thrust him sore that he would fall, but the Lord helped him because the Lord is his strength and song. He lived even when he was without any consolation from God on the cross. He constantly looked to the Lord for help. After crying, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He still lived by faith. He still saw the Lord as his strength and his song. This is a citation from Exodus 15.2. And so, boys and girls, if you want to cite, if you want to see again a connection to the Lord and the greater Exodus, there it is. But people of God, would it be that we would call the Lord our strength and our song? That we would look to the right hand of the Lord in our distresses as Christ did, verses 15 and 16. You know, his humanity had no power to help him on the cross. You saw that he couldn't even carry his own cross. He needed help. And so he looks to the strength of God. He looks to the strength of God. And if the Savior must, we must too, in order to bear our trials he said, The right hand of the Lord will get the victory. It is the right hand of the Lord that is exalted and doeth valiantly. Jehovah's hand is power, and he committed himself to his power. Who can contend with the exalted right hand of Jehovah? Right? This is the question. And when you take the right hand of power and you take God's goodness, isn't that something that should draw us to look to the Lord as our strength? His, he is good and his strength is exercised in goodness. And you remember, as far as it was Christ, it was his divine nature that upheld him on the cross. And here we see why he needed the divine nature to uphold him. Because we see here who was chastening him. It was not the nations that chastened him, but Jehovah. Verse 18 says, The Lord hath chastened me sore, but he hath not given me over unto death. Why in the world would Jehovah chasten the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you know why? Why would he chasten the Lord Jesus Christ? Had he committed any iniquity? No, perfect and pure, blameless, spotless. He was not chastened for his own sin, but your sin, child of God, if you believe on him. What does Isaiah 53 5 say? He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. Did you hear that? The Lord chastened him sore. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. In other words, he received the chastisement that brings you peace child of God. Can you not behold the goodness and severity of God met together on the cross? Goodness to you by way of severity to Jesus. This is why you were saved. But Jesus went to that cross, that Roman cross in faith, believing that God would not give him over to death. Verse 17, I shall not die, but live and declare the works of the Lord. Right? He goes in faith. He is living in faith, even on the cross as the Lord chastens him. I will not die, but live and declare the works of the Lord. He went and he was fastened there, knowing the joy that was set before him, that he would be raised again for our salvation, that he would truly accomplish all that God had set him forth to do and that he would be raised again, alive forevermore and set at God's right hand. Acts 2.24, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. So we rejoice, knowing that God has raised Jesus from the dead, that he is alive now and uh, alive forevermore at God's right hand, ruling over all things. And by sending us his spirit today, he declares the gospel to you by his word. I shall not die but live and declare the works of the Lord. Which is what he is doing now. Sending his spirit from heaven. That you may have this word. That you can know in him you can have everlasting life. As you hear the works of the Lord to save his people. And so knowing the gospels We can return back to verse 5 and see that when he was in his distress, the Lord answered him and set him in a large place. Now, what does that mean, boys and girls? That's a poetic way to speak of liberty and freedom. So it is for you. He was resurrected. He is set at God's right hand. He is set in heaven. And so it will be for you, child of God, who are united to the Savior. You will never die. And the question is why? because the chastening you deserve for your sin was placed upon the Savior. And he was raised again as the first fruits of his people so that you would live even as he lives, such that he could say to you of a truth that those who believe in him shall never die. Believest thou this? And where will you be set? In that large place, as we considered it last uh, Lord's Day evening, that place of glory, heaven set free from a world of sin and misery and especially hell. Now in verses 7, 10, and 11, we consider this refrain that the nations that oppose him will be destroyed. We saw this with the Jewish and Roman nations toppled by King Jesus. So it will be for every nation that thrusts sore at Christ, the wrath of the Lamb, will break out against any nation that will oppose him, even these United States. Now, child of God, this has to cheer you in a sense. And you might ask, though, first, how is it possible, Pastor, that the nations can thrust sore at Christ today? After all, he's in heaven. They can't reach him. Nobody can touch him physically. Well, why does this cheer us? Because as the Lord said to the Apostle Paul before his conversion, those who strike out at his people strike out at him. Which is why he asked, why persecutest thou me? When the Apostle was persecuting him. And so every time the enemies of God thrust sore at us, they are thrusting sore at King Jesus. Every nation that comes against his church will in fact be destroyed. That is again a refrain in the psalm. And so we must be assured of these things, beloved. We must be assured that Christ has the victory, will have the victory, and the people of God through him will have the victory as well. The church will endure, will not die out, and there will always be a church on the earth to worship the Lord. Our king will do it. And so in view of that, Why would you ever have confidence in princes? What prince is going to make this their campaign slogan? Now, I'm well aware that many lie to you, and they probably will try. But no prince can actually do it. Only Christ can. Have no confidence in princes. Whatever our present distresses as a church, no confidence. No seeking after Egypt. We'll consider that thought in our final heading, which is our Christ's salvation. Well, if in the tabernacles of the righteous, salvation is found, verse 15, let's examine it. The final portion of the psalm, verses 19 to 29, deals with many prophecies of Christ. Prophecies that he alone can and did fulfill hundreds of years after this psalm was first penned. And the final portion of this psalm is perhaps best summarized in a word, Hosanna. It's found in verse 25, translated, save now in the authorized version, but the Hebrew is essentially Hosanna. Our psalm then was on the lips of God's people when Jesus entered Jerusalem. You find verses 25 and 26 in Matthew 21, 15, and the multitudes that went before and that followed cried saying, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. And so you see here that this is a, a direct prophecy of our Lord Jesus Christ. But as we consider that, and what they're saying there, which is save now, perhaps you might understand what was on their heart, the entirety of the psalm. If you consider back in verse 19 then, as we consider Hosanna, we go up to verse 19 and we read what was in their heart and mind. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I will go into them. And I will praise the Lord. This is the desire of all who are saved. Of all who cry, Hosanna, open to me the gates of righteousness. This is speaking particularly of the gates of the temple. But as we've done some work in this last week, as we considered heaven This is, as the temple typifies heaven, this is a call for heaven's gates to be opened to the sinner. Would you open to me the gates of righteousness? Would you open heaven to me, O Lord? Save, I plead. Why do sinners have to plead that the gates of righteousness, the gates of heaven, must be opened to them? Because the gates of heaven are barred and shut to sinners because of our sin. You can see that typified even in, uh, after the fall of man. The flaming swords that were set before the tree of life. Barred, heaven is. And this, the sinner who is under conviction of sin considers their own righteousnesses and says, these are as filthy rags. All I have done is of filth and is vile. And I need not my own righteousness. I need an alien righteousness. And so, O God, open to me the gates of righteousness. I have none, as the word of God says, and you see it, right? Everything that you have done, even the best works, you say, polluted, polluted with sin, polluted with self. So if you don't open the gates of righteousness for me, Lord, I have nothing to bring before thee justify me, declare me righteous that I might be saved. Hosanna, save Lord. And so friend, the question is this morning, have you asked the Lord to open the gates of righteousness to you? Or have you thought that you are going to boldly and presumptuously walk into the presence of God and say, here it is, here's all my righteousness. And before your eyes, you're going to see them as menstrual clods. Before the Almighty. And you are going to say woe is me. For I have no righteousness of my own. Have you admitted then friend that you are a sinner? Have you been afraid to tell this to God Almighty? Thinking that if I do say this. He is going to cast me away and never let me in. And so I must pretend. I must hide behind fig leaves. And say I have some righteousness of my own. Can't do it. He sees right through it. Friend, this is where you must remember the goodness and mercy of God. That there is goodness and mercy even to the chief of sinners. The chief of sinners. There is a gate for you, friend, sinner, if you will enter into it. And you must enter into it. Verse 20, this gate of the Lord into which the righteous shall enter. What is this gate in which the righteous shall enter? What is the one gate? by which you must enter. The only gate is Christ. John ten nine. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, what? He shall be saved. Is there any room for doubt that if you have entered these gates of righteousness, if you have entered through Christ, thou shalt be saved. The one who says, I am the way and the truth and the life. The hear, in Christ is the gate of righteousness. You are to enter into him by faith. You can enter into heaven even this day. Our communion text will be uh, the Lord Jesus saying his second word, which is to the thief on the cross. Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. You enter through Christ and heaven's gates are open, flo- thrown open, flung wide open. They're not just opened a little bit. They are totally open in him. Enter him and be made what? The righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21. That alien righteousness that comes from the Lord Jesus Christ placed upon you. Have you known, sinners, that one is not made righteous by works of the law? but instead made righteous by the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ and received by faith alone. This is what you must know as you say, save now. But if by faith you have called out Hosanna to Christ and trusted in him alone, what can you say? I have entered into the gates of righteousness. And he has heard me. Jesus has become my salvation. Verse 21, this is what you must do. I will praise thee for thou hast heard me and art become my salvation. He is your salvation. Have you ever considered how often it is that the Bible says that God is our salvation? Praise him for he is good. His mercy endureth forever. As you turn to verse 22, You recall that our precious Jesus, as precious as he has been in our sight here, was rejected. The stone which the builders refused has become the headstone of the corner. Now the rulers were to build the temple of God. This goes to the religious leaders at the time of Christ. But astonishingly and stupidly, they rejected, and sinfully, they rejected the foundation stone of the very temple, which is Christ. Christ in whom the scriptures teach is the chief cornerstone and the church is built on him and him only. He says, I will build my church. He is the chief cornerstone of that church. And you know, Christ took this verse when he was rejected by the chief priests and the Pharisees. Jesus saith unto them, did ye never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? The same has become the head of the corner.'" This is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Matthew 21, 42. I don't think we should get past the fact that Christ says you should know that this psalm is about him. Have you never heard in the scripture, read in the scripture? But what does verse 23 say of our psalm? And why does Christ cite it? That this rejection of Jesus is marvelous in our eyes. Have you ever thought on that? Why is the rejection of Jesus by the chief, Priests and rulers, marvelous. Well, you know this is God's design, first of all, such that when you see Jesus rejected, you are never to doubt, right? Is he the Messiah or is he not? God has already told you that the Messiah will be rejected by the very builders and rulers of God's people. But especially for you, you rejoice in this. It's marvelous in your sight because he had to be rejected in order to be crucified. Verse 27, God is the Lord which hath showed us light. Here's the light of the glory of God shining in the face of Christ. Bind the sacrifice with cords, even unto the horns of the altar. Jesus, the sacrifice of God, bound to the altar, bound to the cross, nailed to it, And God has given us the light of the gospel to show it to us, the good news of Christ and him crucified. And when we perceive the cross in this marvelous way, right, we do say, though we mourn over it, that Christ was rejected. We do say it is marvelous that he was rejected so that he would be uh, bruised for our iniquities and crushed for them. That the chastisement of God that brings us peace was upon him through his rejection. And when you perceive the cross in this marvelous way, we say, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. But what's the use? By whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. Galatians 6.14. Out of thanks for the cross, we no longer live for the world, but we live for him that answered us on the day that we cried out, Hosanna, save Lord. You know, the wonder of what Christ has done just so that you can say, save Lord, is astonishing. Do you know what he had to accomplish in order for that one word, Hosanna, to come out of your lips, child of God? All that he has done, we take it for granted that salvation is available in Christ and we forget all that he had suffered, all that he had gone through in order to save us. So let us never forget and never stop saying, this is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous. Marvelous in our eyes. Let us rejoice and be glad, O children of God. Let us never ourselves then despise Him as the rulers did. Let us never reject Him. Let us never keep Him at arm's length. Let us embrace Him totally and wholly. Let us never keep any portion of our heart away from Him. For to do so is to reject him. Let us remember what he must be to us in first Peter two, six and seven. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you therefore, which believe he is what? Precious. Not to be rejected but precious. He must be precious to you, especially as you make your way to the table next week. More than anything or anyone in this world who will do or could do what Christ alone has done for you, child of God. When you consider precious Jesus, all you can say is, Oh, my soul, at the very least, I will give thanks to the Lord for he is good. For he is good. And my life has to be in response for all he has done for a sinner who deserves the wrath of God is to be a living sacrifice. And I must say he can have all of me. He must have all of me for he is precious to me. And we must resolve with all our soul to praise him as in verse 28, thou art my God and I will praise thee. Thou art my God, I will exalt thee. Here is your God, here's another refrain. You have no other God. You put away whatever it is that has mastery over you. And you repeat twice that Christ is your God. And I will exalt him only. And what a terrible thing it would be if you have no desire to praise him. To not praise the God who has done such marvelous things for you you and I should desire to exalt Him. Our desire, we're going to talk about our desires a bit tonight, but our desire and not being pulled into the worship of God to praise Him, but our desire is to run into this place and into the secret place and into family worship to praise Him and exalt Him. You should not think of it as a bare duty, but your desire. Because Christ has opened the gates of righteousness to you by the tearing of his own flesh, which you will see prominently in the supper next week when I, God willing, break the bread before you. And you hear the words of the Savior, this is my body which is broken for you. And you think the gates of righteousness are open for me. Heaven's gates opened in the body of Christ. And so the psalm ends, as I told you, As it began, O give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. The idea, in a way, is after you have meditated, you have first sung it, and then you've meditated on the Psalms truths, is that you get to this final verse, and you sing with such understanding and adoration, and you find that this final stanza is more heartfelt and more full of glory than when you first began. Let us then exalt and glorify God for his goodness and mercy to us, that he opened to sinners the gates of heaven when he bound Jesus to the cross. Child of God, this psalm has demonstrated that he is good and that to you his mercy endureth forever. It will never end. You will never fear, as we heard last Lord's Day, that in heaven one day his mercy will stop. You will have it forever And if that is the case, then your praise to God for Jesus Christ should never end either. And may your life in response to all his goodness be a living sacrifice, your reasonable service. Amen. Well, may God bless our meditation on this psalm. Let us arise now, if able, as we go to him in prayer. O Lord of heaven. How far it often is from our heart to merely think, to believe, and to adore the fact that God is good. How little thankfulness we have in our hearts for the goodness of God. And so we pray, O Father, that this day thou wouldst do a work in our hearts to make us a thankful people that we would be thankful most of all for Christ, whom thou hast chastened in the place of sinners who cast themselves on him for mercy. And Lord, would you make this Jesus more precious to us this day than when we first entered the worship service. And for those who have not called on the name of the Lord, may the Holy Spirit today, may he uh, come into their hearts, bringing this word of salvation to them that they would call on the name of the Lord and be saved, that they would cast all their sins and their good works as well before the cross and that they would enter into the gates of righteousness through faith in the Lord, seeing that all the righteousnesses that they need and desire are found in Jesus. We bless you and praise you this day. And we ask these things now for Jesus' sake. Amen.